0: Can you turn in your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter nine, Nehemiah chapter nine. How do you uh, how do you deal with people who consistently or persistently fail you? They break their promises. And they say to you that uh, I tell you the truth, I am not going to do this again, and guess what? Five minutes later, they're doing it again. And what's the phrase, you know, fool me once, shame on you, but it seems like fool me twice, shame on me, that why do I keep putting up with this over and over and over again? I don't know how you are. Uh, For somebody that consistently and persistently fails you, some of us go down this grudge path that we've talked about before, and that grudge path, we have anger over what they've done to us, and then we find ourselves getting embittered over what they've done, and we find ourselves resenting them, and we find ourselves just not able to forgive them. I just can't stand it anymore. I don't want to be in relationship with you anymore. I'm done, right? Perhaps you've been there. It's very few of us that um, are on the grace path, where we have consistently and persistently been sinned against and hurt, and that we go to them with kindness and tenderheartedness and love and forgiveness. That's what God does for us. And as we get an opportunity today to look at chapters 9 and 10, what we're hopefully going to see is that God is a God who, who... who's consistently going after you and loving you and forgiving you and pouring his mercy upon you. Well, Nehemiah's primary job was what? His primary job was to come here and to build a wall around the city. And we've seen that miraculously this has happened in 52 days. In 52 days, this wall has been accomplished. That wall was put up there for the protection of the people. That the people needed a wall to protect their land. But now what Nehemiah is looking at is not just the protection of the people, but he's looking for the purification of the people. He is looking at a people that have been protected because he's gotten a building or a wall around them. But now I want to see these people different, purified, holy. If you remember last week, Pastor Tim got an opportunity to talk us through... um, Nehemiah chapter 7 and 8, and it was this beginning of this revival that was happening. The beginning of the revival began with the speaking of the word, that the word was preached. The word was read, and then it was preached. If you remember, Nehemiah, they built that large platform from which he could stand, and he talked them through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then after he had read it, it seems like the Levites got up and not just read it, but they Taught them. They interpreted what the scriptures were, and this this um, this revival began with the reading of the word. But and you remember what happened? As soon as they heard the word in Rome and Nehemiah eight, what happened? There was sorrow. They felt grief, and they said, "Wait, hold on, stop," because they said, "What? It's not time for grief. It's not time for sorrow. Because what? Joy of the Lord is your what?" It's your strength. At that, that time, it was the feast booze. And right now, that they knew that this was not the right time to allow for this sorrow to come. I was listening to a speaker and he had said, How often is it that we as speakers and musicians at times find the emotional energy that happens from people and we kind of gin that up, right? that we, you know, 500 stanzas of that song or 1,500 altar calls because we're just trying to gin up emotional energy. That's not what Nehemiah and Ezra were doing. They recognized at this moment in time that the reading of the scripture had happened. They started to feel something. They said, no, this is a time for joy, but there is going to be a time for sorrow. And that's what we see here. In Nehemiah 8, it was the reading of the word. Nehemiah 9 and 10 It was the proclamation of the word. It was this long prayer. We'll talk about it. The four basic sections to chapters 9 and 10. I break it down into verses 1 and 2 of chapter 9, the preparation. So they're coming and they're preparing to hear the word again. In verses 3, 4, 5 of chapter 9, there's the proclamation of the word again. So they hear the word again. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy again. The largest section of here, chapters 9, verses 6 to the end, is this prayer, this supplication. The Levites, after they've read the scriptures, now what they're going to do is they have a supplication. They're praying to God. They're asking God, in light of what we've just heard, please forgive us. The last section... Preparation, proclamation, supplication. The last section is the end of chapter 9, verse 38, through chapter 10. And this is a place of purification. That, that God, because of what you've done for us, this is what we covenant with you to do for you and for others. So that's how we're going to go today, the big picture. Turn with me to chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Preparation. Now on the 24th day, this is seven days after, uh, after the seven days of the Feast of Booze, 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled. So they gathered together in the solemn assembly with fasting and sackcloth and with earth on their head. And the Israelites separated themselves from the, war, from the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquity of their fathers." So they come now after this joy of the Lord is our strength and this wonderful time with God. Now they come to hear the word again and they are prepared. They're anticipating what God is going to do. They talk about fasting and sackcloth and heaping dust on their head. It's these external marks of an internal awakening that has happened. There's an internal grief that they knew that they're going to have to deal with. They had heard the word a week before, and now they're going to have to deal with this. And they're feeling this, and they're coming prepared. It's solemn assembly. It says in verse 2 that the Israelites separated themselves. Holiness. That's a theme that we're going to talk about this morning. Holiness means to be set apart. It's, it's we're uniting as God's chosen people. We're coming together as God's chosen people to be set apart from the world, set apart from the foreigners. And what they did was there was an integrity of their heart here, a wholeness that was here. And they confessed. Confess means to say the same thing as God says. They confess to God, and then what did they do? They not only confess their sins, but they confess the sins of their father. So there's a confession that is not just personal, it's corporate. It's not just personal, it's national. What they're doing is they're joining together. It's not just my sin, it's our sin. We join together. That's going to be an important theme. They're preparing as a community. To start this process of purification. Because Nehemiah wasn't just concerned with the protection of the people with the wall. He was concerned with their purification. That moved to the second thing that happened. Was the the proclamation of the word. Verses 3 through 5. And they stood up in their place. And read the book of the law of the Lord. Their God. For a quarter of the day. And then for another quarter of the day. They confessed and worshipped. Can you imagine if I just preached for uh, a quarter of the day (laughs) and we read the word and I preached and then what did we do? Then we confessed and worshiped God for another quarter of the day. Incredible day. It would be good. Now whether one number of hours that they're hearing God's word, hearing Genesis and through Deuteronomy again and they're hearing what God has done. Verse five. It says this, after these leaders had um, been part of this, the Levites who had been teaching them, it says, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. They stood up and they praised God. They praised his holy name. And now what the Levites are going to do after they read the word is now they're going to pray. The leaders, the spiritual leaders, got up before this congregation, and they said, we are going to pray for you. We are going to mouth our prayers to God for you. We're going to intercede for our group. And they begin this prayer in verse 6, this supplication, verse 6 through the end of the chapter. They begin it with the word you. You are the Lord. Start with the word you. I found it interesting. I went through, and I think it's about 30 times in this section that the word you is used. And the you is God. So this is a god focus, what God has done in spite of us. The prayer is, to you, God. It says, you are the Lord. And you know, we've talked about this before. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is what? Yahweh. The personal name of God given to us in Exodus chapter 3. I am who I am. There is no rival. This is the God that we stand before. This is the God who is the one that we worship. You are alone God. And they begin this prayer. It's interesting that if you were thinking about the fact that they started Genesis through Deuteronomy, what's the very first section of Genesis about? Creation. Well, where do they begin their prayer? creation you have made the heavens and the heavens of heavens with all the host and the earth and all that is in it the sea and all that is in them and you have preserved all of them and the host of heaven worships you this divine providence that what god does for us is he created us he we are not sovereign he is he is the creator we are the creature he is the sovereign one we are the submissive and he has put us up he has put us at a high level, but we're not above him. He is the one that is above us. We look to him as a creator. There is no other God, but it's not just that he created us. It says that he preserves you in his divine providence. He preserves you. He sustains you. He keeps you. He keeps you secure in the midst of all the ups and downs of your life. God holds you steady, just like he holds all the creation steady. It's amazing. Verse seven. He moves from creation to talk about Abram. He says, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram, the father of Israel here. You chose Abram. You called him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans. You called him out of that place. Was he special? Was there anything significant about Abram alone? No. God put his love upon Abram and called him, and he chose him, and he chose this nation just like he chose you. God's divine sovereignty. He says he called him out of the ear of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. That he is not just the father to the nation of Israel. He is a father to every single one that will ever trust in God through Christ. He's a father of multitudes of nations. So they pray to God, thank you, Lord, that you've given me covenant with him. The end of verse 8, it says, you have kept your promises and you were righteous. Righteousness is going to be a significant issue in this prayer. Righteousness is this blamelessness, holiness. And God is called righteous twice in this section. In in this verse, and we'll see it again in verse 33. Righteousness is important because you and I struggle day after day because we're so unrighteous. You're going to see that in this prayer. But God is perfectly righteous. We are faithless. He is faithful. He is the one that we can trust in. Your righteousness is your holy, your faithful God. They moved from the creation in Abraham to the Exodus. Verse 9, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. And you heard their cries, you know, cries for deliverance. God, protect us, bring us out of this. This is from the book of move from Genesis to now Exodus. They hear the cries at the Red Sea. And what did God do? God performed signs and wonders, miracles done against Pharaoh to bring his people out. Against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself. I love this line. See, God's primary goal is to make his name known to a lost and dying world. To make his name known and to make the gospel known through you. That's why we're here. We are here to reflect God. And God did all of this to make his name known. He actually took a commandment to say that you can't take my name in vain. A name is so important. God, is reverence is to be reverenced. He is to be honored. His name is to be um, uplifted. You know, the Jews would not even take God's name and pronounce it. And when they wrote it, they would not write it fully because they reverenced his name so much. God wants to make a name for himself through you, as it is to this day. And what did God do in this Exodus? You divided the sea before them, and you went through the midst of the sea to dry land, and you cast out their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters, and by a pillar of cloud by day, And pillar of fire by night to light them to give way in which you should go once again This is all a prayer Now they move to the giving of the law verse 13 And then you came down on mount sinai and you spoke to them from heaven and gave them the right rules and true laws and good Statutes and commandments. God gave us a standard. Why? Why did god give us a law? I think it was John Calvin in his Institutes talked about three reasons, useful purposes for the law. The first one is this: that the law is kind of like a mirror. You stand up in front of a mirror, and the mirror will show you who you are. Well, the Bible, the law becomes a mirror. It shows us the glory of God, and then it shows us the sinfulness of my own life. That as I look into that mirror, I see God and I see myself, and it points me away from myself. To some solution. The law is secondarily given to restrain evil. That a society that uses that law and that standard will help to restrain evil. It doesn't change a human heart, but what it can do is it can provide rule of law. He gave a third reason. I'll talk about that later, but the first one is a mirror, the second one is a restrainer. So God, in his graciousness, says, I'll give you a law. I want you to be protected. Well, the prayer then goes from there in verse to verse 15. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and water for them out of the rock. You remember this? This was in the Exodus in the wilderness. That God sustains his people. Not only does God give them a guidance in his rules, but he sustains you in the midst of the difficulties of your life. He's there for you. But then here's where the prayer changes. Verse 16. You remember, I had asked you before, how do you deal with somebody who constantly rejects you? How do you deal with somebody who is persistently and consistently failing you? I wonder if you deal with them the way God deals with us. Verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously proud, and they stiffened their necks, means stubborn, and did not obey your commandments. They refused to listen or obey, and they were, they were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed leaders to return them to slavery. But you are a God who's ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. What we're going to see in the next several verses is this. There is going to be a cycle. Rebellion or sin, the judgment of God, the repentance of the people, and then finally the deliverance by God. Judgment, sin and rebellion, judgment, repentance, and then finally deliverance. Well, here there is the rebellion. The rebellion was that they refused to listen to God and obey him. They failed to remember him. They failed to remember everything that he had done. You remember when we go to our communion service, it says what? Do this as often as you do this in what? A remembrance of me, right? We are called to do that communion service or a baptism service because what we do is we remember what Christ has done for us. They were called to do the same, but they forgot God. They'd forgotten all this, what he had done. There was rebellion. There's, there's deliverance. Look with me in verses 18 through 25 because it gives us a second phrase of rebellion and deliverance. Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, a metal god here, can you believe it? What apostasy. And said, this is our God who brought us up out of Egypt and it committed great blasphemies, God. But you and your great mercies did not forsake them. So what God had seen again was this great apostasy, this rebellion against him. They actually created this golden metal calf, this metal God, and said this was the God that brought them out of Egypt. They had such great dishonor of God, and they deserted God, but God loved them. He refused to desert them. He delivered them. And then what does it say in verse 19? It says that he gave them a, pall- a pillar of fire by night, to lead them. You gave them a good spirit, verse 20, to instruct them and did not withhold manna from their mouths. You gave them water to their thirst. Does that remind you of Romans 12 where it says, if your enemy is hungry, what do you do with him? Feed them. If he's thirsty, what do you do? Give him something to drink. Isn't that what, God's, what God is saying is that what I did for you as a people, I want you to do for others. Let's keep going. Verse forty of uh, 21. Forty years you have sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Their feet did not swell. Now we've moved from creation and Abram moved from the Exodus to now the promised land. It says in verse 22, you gave them a kingdom of people and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land and they went on. Verse 23, you multiplied their children. You brought them into a land. You've done all these wonderful, amazing things for them. But if you jump down to verse 25, we see it again. After God has done all of these amazing things, the amazing grace that he's poured out to them, verse 25, here goes the contrast again, 26. Nevertheless, once again, they were what? Disobedient, and they rebelled against you. And they, this now, they cast their law, your law behind them. They turn their backs on you, God, and they turn their backs on your law. They actually start killing your prophets. Who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Once again, rebellion and sin. Verse 27, therefore you gave them into their hands of their enemies. Now there's judgment. And you made them suffer. Who brought about this judgment? God. It's a fearful thing one person said to fall into the hands of an angry God. That you've spit in my face time after time, and now I'm going to let you have the consequences of your sin. God gives judgment. And what happened? Then they cry out to God, They're suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven, and according to your great mercies, what did you do? You saved them. So rebellion, judgment, repentance, deliverance. Next phrase, verse 28, same same situation. But after they had rested and did evil again before you, and you abandoned them, judgment, into the hands of their enemies, and they had dominion over them. And when they turned again and cried to you, you heard them from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your amazing mercies. Verse 29, And you warned them again to turn back to your law. And what did they do again? They acted presumptuously proud, and they did not obey, disobedient, and they sinned against your laws, lawbreaker. Which if a person does them, they shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder. They didn't care about you, God. And they stiffened their neck, very stubborn, and they would not listen. They refused to obey. Verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they did not give ear rebellion. Therefore, God gave them to the hands of the people judgment. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, deliverance here, You did not make an end to them or forsake them. God could have just said, I'm done. And he didn't. Time after time, I am so impatient at times. And I know you can struggle with it as as well. When somebody does the same thing over and over again, I am done with you. I break this relationship. I'm over with you. God never did it. He constantly pursued them. He was open and ready to forgive. Amazing. Verse 32, there's a language switch here. You remember we had talked about 30 times in the opening prayer, it was you. Now the language switch, and they were talking about you and they. You, God, did this, they did this to you. Talking about our forefathers, now there's a language switch that happens. This is during the dynastic period. This is during the the reign period. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty God, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardships seem too little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings and our princes, and our priests and our prophets and our fathers and all your people since the time of the kingdom of Assyria to this day. Probably the suffering they're talking about is the exile here, the exile in Assyria and the exile in Babylon, that we have found ourselves in prison and in captivity because of our sin. And you have allowed us to be under this judgment, God. I love verse 33. Yet you have been righteous. Second time he's used that word. And all that has come upon us. How often is it that when I suffer consequences for my sin, that I just praise God and say, God, you're righteous. <laughs> you're righteous for beating me. <laughs> you're righteous for holding me accountable. You're righteous for allowing this consequence to come upon me. That is a sign of a really changed heart that I can recognize that even the punishment that has come upon me, the difficulty, the discipline, the consequences that have come into my life is a sure sign that I am ready to be changed by God. You've, it says, he says, you have dealt faithfully. And we have acted right uh, wickedly. We have been foolish. We have been adulterous. We've been idolatrous. We've been lustful. We fail you, Lord. But you're faithful. You're right in all that you've done. I fail. You are perfect. I am wicked and you are gracious. Amazing. But here's the dilemma. What happens if God ever stopped being Merciful and gracious and forgiving. What happens if, like you and me, we get to the end of it? I'm done. What happens? There's a great tension that happens in the Old Testament. It's not answered in the Old Testament. The tension is this that God is holy and just, He is the lawgiver, He is the creator. We're the creation. We are required to follow his standard. But he's loving and he's gracious. And these two things are going to battle throughout the Old Testament. And so what do we do? We bring a cat, We bring a, a lamb, sacrifice the lamb. Blood is spilled day after day after day trying to deal with this holy and righteous God and a loving and forgiving God. And how do I find it coming to an end? Did I do enough? It's a great dilemma. It's not solved. Because as I used the quote earlier, fool me once, shame on you. But isn't there a place that God, if your name is to be reverenced, when are you going to say, no, I've had enough? Can you imagine if human judge were allowing for people day after day after day to come into his courtroom or her courtroom. And they just let him go. Would we look at that judge as a righteous judge? No. We would be up in arms. So God. You're telling me lambs and goats. Are going to take away sin and guilt? They don't. Romans beautiful passage. If you get a chance to read in Romans chapter 3, it talks about that God in his, in his wonderful grace in his forbearance passed over former sins. And why he did that was this. He passed over those former sins because what he was going to do is this. He was going to punish those sins on the back of his son the Lord Jesus Christ. He was going to take his most precious gift for you. He hates sin. He hates it with a holy hatred. Don't ever misunderstand that. And he took the most precious gift that he could ever give. And he sacrificed that gift for you and for me. Amazing love. Amazing grace. Verse 36. Prayer is coming to the end. Behold, we are slaves. We should be free, Lord. We're slaves. We're slaves to what? Our sin. Verse 37. We are in great distress. Verse 38. I don't know if you're in your distress this morning. This morning, Do you find yourself feeling hopeless and helpless? Do you find yourself making another promise that you're probably not going to keep? How many of those resolutions that you began earlier this year have already been gone? What's the solution? See, the solution is another law, right? Another promise, another covenant, another commitment. But I'm going to fail. And then, how about the distress that you're going through? Let's say the distress you're going through is because of you. Because of the choices that you've made. God, why should you forgive me? God's answer is this, look away from yourself. Look away from yourself to Christ. You look within to find the problem. You look without to Christ to find the solution. There are two doctrines that I I love. There's one doctrine we call it justification. Justification is this, this beautiful doctrine. What God says is this. He declares us not guilty. He actually declares that you are a law keeper in his sight. Justification deals with the fact that it is this free offer of grace that God gives you and me where he pardons all of your sins and accepts you as righteous in his sight. It's not based on your character or conduct because I fail every day. It's based on the character and conduct of the one who has never failed, the Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is this act where God actually credits to your account the perfect life of Christ and he takes your imperfect life and he places that on Christ's account. And what he does in that justification is beautiful. Christ fully and completely satisfies the anger and the wrath of God for your sins if you trust in him. It's amazing. And the only condition for justification is what? Faith. And even that faith is a gift given to you by God. You can stand righteous in his sight. It's no longer up and down, up and down, fail and fail. Fail and be forgiven. It is. I am forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit lives within me because you died and rose again. See, the answer is not another law. The answer is looking to the Lord. The answer is not another promise. The answer is recognizing that the promise keeper is Christ, not me. But what did they do? They went from their preparation to the proclamation of the word to this great supplication, and what did they do? Now the leaders get together, and they say, okay, we're going to make a promise of purification. And this promise of purification, they, um, remember the third use of the law? We had talked about the three uses of the law. Law number one, uh, it was there as a mirror to show me God's righteousness and our sinfulness. Number two, it's to restrain evil, but number three is this, For those that are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, the law, we are not under the law for salvation, but we can follow the law by the power of the Holy Spirit living in us to do what is pleasing before God. It doesn't earn you any merit. It doesn't earn you any points of your salvation. It does not increase God's love for you. It does not increase God's acceptance of you. What it does is it shines our light of God out to the world by being a law keeper. The problem is, is that outside of Christ, we're going to fail. Can I just do a high level of chapter 10 for you? Positionally, justification makes us positionally holy. That today, on your worst day, if you're in Christ, God still sees you as loved, accepted, and forgiven. Doesn't change. That's what justification does. But there's a second element of what we'll call sanctification. I think that's what they're trying to get to in chapter 10. Sanctification is holiness in life. Practical holiness, that positionally I know that I am saved, I am forgiven, I am graced, but practically I mess up day after day, so I'm going to make some promises to you, God. In verse 10, the leaders come together, actually, at the end of verse 38. It's, it's interesting how we have it in the Hebrew Bible, verse 38 of chapter 9 is actually the beginning of chapter 10. I think it makes sense because it says, Because all of, all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing on a sealed document, binding agreement the names of our princes and our Levites and our priests. And then it goes into chapter 10, holiness. Here's where we are going to make our promise of purification. There's holiness among the leaders, verses one and two. We see that um, uh, Nehemiah and Zedekiah who are are representing the civil powers. Zedekiah is probably uh, Nehemiah's secretary. He's kind of like our notary republic, right? So I need to get something notarized. Uh, Zedekiah is probably a notary. Uh, Then in verses 2 through 8, we have 21 priests' names, so they sign the document. Ezra's name is not listed here, but he is probably listed under Sariah, um, the very first name of chapter 2, he's part of his family. Uh, Verses 9 through 13, we have a listing of um, 17 Levites, so it's not only the civil powers, it's not only the priests, but now the Levites come together. And then verses 14 through 27, we have prominent families of the church. 44 family members signed this document. And in essence, you remember what Pastor Tim was talking about last week. They said they got to a point where it's like, amen and amen. Now they've made the promise. Now they're signing it. Can I just give you some of the areas? I pray that this this afternoon you get some time to read through chapters 9 and 10. But let me just give you some of the areas where they covenanted it, made commitments. The first one is found in verse 28. They, in response to the word, made a covenant towards holiness to separate themselves. It says they all have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of the Lord. Holiness is to be set apart. It means to separate yourself. One speaker that I was listening to this week asked a good question. Is there an observable difference between us and the world? Are our values and our goals similar to the world, or are they different? You know, there is a group of people out in Pennsylvania and Ohio that separate themselves radically from culture, right? They move themselves out of culture. They don't want to be part of culture. That's not what Scripture tells us to do. Scripture doesn't tell us to separate ourselves in that way, be in the world but not of it. See, we are called to be here, but there should be a radical difference of our lives. It should show something different. Well, they separated themselves. Let me go to the second thing that they covenanted, verse three. I mean thirty. We will not give our daughters to people of the land or take daughters from their sons. There's holiness not only in their separation, but there's holiness in their home. They go to this element of the family. Family is so important. Family becomes the uh, foundation of, of our government and our society. It's so interesting that as you see societies break down, it is predated by the fact that the family breaks down. As a family breaks down, what ends up happening, it starts to erode society. So what are we going to do? We are not gonna give our daughters to those that are not part of the faith. Now, is this interracial relationships? No, I don't believe so at all. It's not that. What he's saying is that we're not gonna give to our daughters, to someone who is not in the faith. And when we marry outside the faith, you are going to erode your family. And When you marry outside the faith, you can potentially erode society. Now, in some people's cases, I've known some, that have married outside the faith, and by God's grace, he has brought that spouse to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and now they have covenanted together. That's by God's grace and wonder. But to go outside of God's standard, that can happen. But God's standard is this, marry within the body. And it's not only just marrying within the body that this person has professed faith in Christ. Marry a mature believer. Because if you're marrying a nominal believer, that's almost as bad. Marry somebody who loves the word and loves God and is going to be there to lead this family in a God-honoring way. Holiness in the home. Holiness at work, verse 31. And if the people of the land brought goods and grains on the Sabbath to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or a holy day. Now, are we under the Sabbath requirements? I, I don't believe so. The Sabbath law that was given in the Old Testament, I don't believe we're under the same criteria. However, I would say this. I think we've gone to the other extreme today. I wonder if we think about this day as a day set apart for God. I wonder if we think about maybe coming to adult Bible fellowship in the morning, because this is a day that God has set apart. I wonder if you ever think about taking the notes from the sermon and studying them in the afternoon. I wonder if you ever think about joining together with other believers and spending some time with them. Does it mean that we can't do other activities on Sunday? No, I don't think we're under that same issue. But there is a general principle that this day was to be set apart for God and for his people do you use that day in that way? Another area of holiness was in their church commitments, verse 32 and following. Um, They paid a temple tax for the building of their building. How unique is that, huh? (laughs) They Gave some additional contributions. Verse 34 and 35, they brought wood. Sometimes you don't have money to give, but now maybe you can bring some tools or things. Maybe you can come this week and help out at the church. Maybe you don't have money in your bank account, but you can give your time, your talents, or your treasures to help out this body. Verse 36, they made a commitment of holiness to bring their firstborn. It's a priority of God. Verse 37, they even prioritize their tithing, their giving. Now, are we under the same requirements of the Old Testament law of tithing? No, I don't believe so. Actually, the word tithe is not even mentioned in the New Testament. But there is a sense in the New Testament that we should be hilarious givers when we recognize how much God has done for you, give graciously. That if if he was rich and for our sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich, that should be a driving force to compel me to just give. In a God-honoring way. I don't know if your giving is planned or or systematic. I don't know if when you give, you're cheerful in doing it. I honestly believe that that's the case. i got to go to the last verse of this section, verse chapter 10. We will not neglect the house of our God. (laughs) How long did it take them to break that one? But I do like the fact that they made a commitment. I think commitments are good. I think I'm asking you to make some commitments. And I think in your commitments, be specific. In your commitments, be thorough. In your commitments, don't blame others. Don't minimize your sin. Can I give you a couple of practical solutions? I think that um, sometimes I think we need to make some commitments. And I like keeping a journal. So, you know, if I sit down last week, as I was sitting down listening to Pastor Tim, he hit me with a couple of things. I got, and it's like, man, bam, bam. And it's like, what did I do? I wrote them down. I wrote them down, and I shared them with other people. It's not only just writing them down in your journal, but then share it with somebody that can hold you accountable. And then when you do that, recognize you're probably going to (laughs) fail. And then you look away from yourself to Christ and you place yourself under the waterfall of his grace, and you can be captured by his grace, be captured by his captivating grace, his compassionate grace. Can I end with this? I know that there are probably some people here this morning that struggle with shame and fear and guilt. Shame over the fact that I know that I've done this terrible sin, and if you knew me, you would not want to be in a relationship with me. Some of you feel great levels of guilt because you know you're a lawbreaker. Some of you have great fear that no one will love you. There's some people here that are legalists. Legalists are types of people who believe that they can keep a law and they can do it by themselves. They can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. The Old Testament was given to legals to say you can't do it. There are some people that are guilt-ridden today, and they're under condemnation, and they look at their sin, and they can't imagine that God can forgive them. The Old Testament was given to you to say that this is a God who's ready to forgive you. He's so gracious and loving. Stop obscuring the cross. So the cross is amazing. That God, in his perfect life in Christ, lived perfectly for you in your to counter your rebellion. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. That is why we have David, who's an adulterer and a murderer. We have Solomon, who had 900 women. We have people after people in the Old Testament pointing to the fact that the greatest sin that you could ever think that you can do has been forgiven. Live in the forgiveness. My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Or how about, Lord, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. My, your one defense, my, your righteousness. Oh, God, I need you. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You are condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit lives within me because you died and rose again. See, the song, I don't know what song you're singing to yourself today, but if you're singing the song of a legalist, that I can do it, you're a fool. You can't. I can't. He can. If you're singing the song of one who's condemned, you're missing the amazing aspect of the cross. He has already known your sin before you did it, and he's already forgiven you if you trust in Christ. The song of hope. It takes you from sin to a savior. It takes you from guilt to grace. It takes you from lust to love. It takes you from failure to his perfection and your freedom. Look away from yourself. Look away from your abilities and look to Christ. And then when you look to Christ, look to Christ to do a work in your life to start to transform you and change you. Lord, I praise you and we thank you. Father, well, there's an, another song that I love. It goes this way, that uh, marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's Grace grace that is greater than all our sin father i know that there's this morning as i look at this this congregation look out at this congregation there are some here who have never trusted your son lord i pray that they would recognize that all their law keeping will earn them nothing because they have to be perfect they can't just do good they have to be perfect and they never will I pray that they would look away from themselves and their ability to the ability found in Christ. Christ alone. Lord, I know that there's some here this morning as well that believe that their sin is so great that you could never forgive them. Lord, I pray that you would overwhelm them with your grace and tell them that, oh, I want to forgive you. I am ready to forgive. I am compassionate and loving. I pray that they would hear those words of good news. And Lord, for the many of us that are here that do know your son and have faith in him because you've given us that gift, Father, I pray that you would remind us once again of the beauty of the gospel. Help us to live that gospel message because the gospel changes lives. The gospel changes everything. In Jesus' name, amen.